Amen. You may be seated. Hallelujah for that. If you would take the Word of God with me, please, this morning, and turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 54. Chapter 4 of the prophecy of Isaiah. We begin reading with the first verse and read through the chapter. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing, and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent. Let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed. Neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth when thou wast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors, and lay thy foundations with sapphires, and I will make thy windows of agates, and thy gates of carbuncles, and all thy borders of pleasant stones, and all thy children shall be taught of the Lord. And great shall be the peace of thy children. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work. And I have created the waster to destroy. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is of me saith the Lord. And trust that God would add, add His own blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. Let's pray briefly before we come to the Word. 
Our Father in heaven, we'll plead with thee, Lord, as we have prayed to meet with us. O Lord, come thyself even, Lord, and preach the message to every heart, not through my lips, Lord, merely, but through that still, small voice of the Holy Ghost speaking to every soul. And may Jesus, may Jesus, crucified and risen, receive all the glory. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. I'd like to draw your attention this morning to the verse, verses 9 and 10. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed. But my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. These are tremendous promises, aren't they? No more wrath, kindness forever. But the question we need to ask ourselves before we even deal with these texts is, do these promises have anything to do with you or me? Now Isaiah prophesied to Israel. Isaiah prophesied many, many, many years ago. Do these promises have anything to do with you and do they have anything to do with me? It's a travesty, really, that many people coming to the Old Testament, they will see a straight, thick line of demarcation between Israel and the church. Total discontinuity. There's absolutely nothing that is applied to Israel that can be applied to the church. There's nothing that has any sense of continuity between them. And so many people coming to the Old Testament will read promises and feel that they have nothing to do with them. Even covenant promises that God makes with His people, they have nothing to do with them. All these amazing words from God and texts, and they feel there's nothing to do with them. Well, I submit to you this morning that these promises are for you. They're for the believer. They're for the New Testament church. Isaiah chapter 54 is the chapter that outlines for us the promises of the new covenant. Before I deal with the promises themselves, I think we have to be intellectually satisfied that these promises really are the blessings of the new covenant. You see in the first place that Isaiah 53 comes before 54. What is Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53 is the work of Jesus on the behalf of His people. And really, Isaiah 53 speaks of that covenant that the Father made with the Son. It's spoken of as an eternal covenant. But how can something be eternal? It's difficult to understand. But this is a covenant that the Father made with the Son. That if the Son would do what the Father had set out for Him to do, fulfilling the law, bearing the wrath, of that law for the sins of his people, he would give him a people. The covenant between the Father and the Son. You see that outline in Isaiah 53. Well, then you come to Isaiah 54. 
And in Isaiah 54, it begins with this text, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing. What is he talking about? Well, did you know that that verse is quoted by the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians, chapter 4 and verse 27, as applying to the church? If Paul can apply that verse to the church, what's he saying? Well, this chapter is the outline of really the new covenant or the covenant of grace, the blessings of those covenants that we are in through Christ with God. Paul quotes from this because in Galatians 4, he's talking about how we are children of the promise. We are spiritual Israel. In Galatians chapter 6, the Bible talks about the Israel of God. But the new covenant is spoken of in many different places in Scripture. You remember in Jeremiah chapter 31, and Ezekiel, I believe it's 36, the Bible talks about a new covenant that would be made with Israel. They shall all know me. They shall all be taught of the Lord. If you notice in the 13th verse of Isaiah 54, the Bible says, And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord. Is Isaiah saying, Israel, there will come a day when every single child of an Israelite by physical descent is going to be taught of the Lord? No. What he is saying is, is that there is going to come a day when all thy children, Zion, today, the Israel of God, Church of Christ, shall be taught of God. And all the children of Zion, all the children of the church, all those who truly know Christ are taught of God. Jesus quotes this text in John 6.45 when he's talking to the Pharisees and he's saying, if you knew, if you believe me, then I would know that you know my Father. But you've not been taught of God. Meaning that this verse is not talking about physical descent. It's talking about regeneration in the church of Christ. This is a new covenant blessing. Also, if you look at this chapter, you see the mention in verse 10 of the covenant of peace. The covenant of peace... And in chapter 55, verse 3, I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Well, what's the covenant of peace? What's the everlasting covenant? Well, that's the covenant that's spoken of in the book of Hebrews. The everlasting covenant that God would make with His people through His Son, Jesus, who's the mediator. This chapter outlines for us new covenant blessings. Now, the new covenant is the covenant that every single believer today has entered into. It is an unconditional covenant. Every single person in that covenant has the law of God written upon their hearts, has been taught of the Lord. There is no one in that covenant that does not know the Lord. This is a new thing, the Lord says to His people. Because... In the Old Testament, the covenants that God made with His people involved a mixed membership. Some were saved, some were not. Out of all the people that were circumcised in the Old Covenants, many were circumcised and that bore a reality 
excuse me, bore the picture of the reality of a heart circumcision. But everyone in the new covenant has been circumcised in heart. Everyone in the new covenant has been taught of the Lord. And so the prophet is saying to national Israel, there's coming a day when I will return to thee in great mercy. I will never be wroth with thee again. I will never forsake you again. That day never came for national Israel. All the promises involved here didn't come, but they come to us. Because in the new covenant, every single one of God's people have been taught of the Lord. So I submit to you that this chapter and these promises are for you. They're for you this morning. Talking about your salvation. Talking about what you have experienced in Jesus. And so we come to the text. The text says that the waters of Noah, as the waters of Noah were, poured out upon the earth in wrath, so I will never be wroth with thee, church. And that has an application to us. This is extremely important. These are some of the most incredible promises you'll ever find in the Word of God. They're incredibly important because these promises were written with a certain audience in mind. Verse 11 describes the audience. O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted. Israel is going through a very difficult time at this time. And the Lord is saying, I want you to be comforted with these two especially covenant comforts. Although you're afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted. You see, Israel was about to experience God's judgment, or they had experienced God's judgment. Excuse me. And could you imagine how they felt? They felt that there was no hope for them. They felt that maybe God had forsaken them. The Bible uses the word afflicted. Is there anyone here this morning afflicted? You feel afflicted. That's a word that talks about and communicates pain. The Christian life is not a bed of roses, is it? We go through suffering. And some of us might have come here afflicted in soul. I don't know why. Believer, you might be afflicted today. Something's taken place, tossed with tempest. I listened to Ben's message the other Wednesday night talking about those waves of suffering and trial. Tossed with tempest. The Lord uses that phrase to describe someone who has gone through just, just the emotional ups and downs of suffering and trial and difficulty and not comforted, it says. Not finding comfort in anything. Not finding comfort in the Word. Not finding comfort in anything. Your circumstances and prayer just absolutely unable to be comforted. And at the heart of this is a lack of assurance of God's love. You and I both know that when we go through something that is so difficult that we actually begin to wonder if God, if God even has favorable purposes for us, it is the most miserable feeling in the world. You fall into sin and doubt, perhaps even bitterness, and then you feel so ashamed, you feel that the Lord has turned his back on you or is sick of you, displeased with you. 
because of your sin and then it's just a downward spiral and you could say with the people of Israel I'm afflicted, I'm tossed with tempest I'm not comforted I don't have that sense of joy in my soul I don't have that sense of assurance in my soul of God's love but this, these comforts are also for those of you this morning who you're cold at heart I spoke this morning in Sunday school about how in Second Peter Peter's talking to those who are barren Christians and saying, you've forgotten that you were purged from your old sins. And if you forget, if you are not living in the enjoyment of God's salvation to your soul, you will go on in a barren way. You need to be convinced of God's covenant promises to you. And those promises are twofold. Wrath, never. Kindness, forever. And if these grip your soul, you will be more and do more for God than you ever had, ever will. May the joy fill our hearts this morning as we leave the house of God, knowing wrath, never. Kindness, forever. Well, first, consider with me, wrath, never. In the ninth verse, we read, For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee nor rebuke thee. The real key to this verse is two little words. As... And so, as the waters of Noah, as I've sworn, and then you go down, so have I sworn I would not be wroth with thee. I think about one day I'm going to have to tell my daughter, little Joanna, as I have a job, so you need to get a job. Parallel, as, so. Just like this, there's a direct parallel to this. Not the exact thing, but the structure is the same. The principle is the same. The meaning is the same. And the Lord is saying, just as what happened in the days of Noah, I poured out my wrath and then I swore that I would never do it again. So I have done with you, church. So I've done with you. So first, as God judged sin in Noah's day, so has he with us. The Bible says here that the waters of Noah unto me, as the waters of Noah unto me. What were the waters of Noah? The waters of Noah were so great that they covered the entire earth. I don't believe in a local flood. And I hope you don't either. Trust me, in seminary I've read those that believe in a local flood and how the local flood covered the mountains as high as the Bible says that it did, and et cetera, et cetera. I, I'll never understand. But this is a worldwide flood. And the reason why it must be a worldwide flood is because it is a picture of the wrath of God that will be poured out on the earth one day. And that was poured out in Noah's day. You think of the parallels that, can, that go through the New Testament. 
when the Lord Jesus says that it shall be like the days of Noah. The last days shall be like the days of Noah, when I will come and I will bring my judgment upon the world again. Think of in Second Peter chapter 3, when it talks about the waters of Noah. And those that were scoffers in the times of Noah are scoffing and saying, Jesus isn't going to come. But just like he, the waters came in the days of Noah, Jesus in His wrath and His judgment is going to come. And so the waters of Noah are a picture, perhaps the most graphic and terrifying picture of the wrath and judgment of God in all the Scriptures. We know that it was because of the judgment of God on sin. Because in Genesis 6 verse 5, the Bible says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man. I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. And in verse 17, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. It's very clear, isn't it? The waters of Noah were a direct result of the sin of mankind. And may I warn you this morning, as Jesus warned, as He spoke of the wrath of God, that God's wrath will be poured out on sinners. You mark my words. Just as the waters of Noah flooded the earth, and everyone around Noah said, it's not going to come. You mock my words. The wrath of God will fall. Because of your sin. Is Jesus a liar when He said over and over again, there's a place where the worm dies not, the fire is not quenched. Was He wasting words? Is the Bible just a fairy tale? There is coming a day of wrath. But here is the promise of the covenant. The Bible says that there was a day when God poured out His wrath upon the earth. Floods of waters rose up. The sky poured down buckets of water upon the earth. And the ground was broken up and the springs of the deep blasted water so much that it covered the earth. And men and women and children even were drowned. They cried for help. They ran to the tops of the mountains. But there was no mercy. There was no mercy for one. And there came a day when the very last drop of water fell and God's judgment was complete. And what we have in the New Covenant is this. There was a day when God's judgment fell and it fell on Jesus. The billows of God's wrath 
the floodgates were opened. And God spilled, the Father spilled all of His undiluted wrath. Where? Upon Jesus. Because Jesus was made sin. And in Jesus, God the Father punished sin. He was made sin. Every one of your sins was laid on Jesus. Your lies, your perversion, your selfishness, your drunkenness. It was all laid on Jesus. And God the Father, He said, open up the floodgates of heaven and let the infinite, eternal fullness of my wrath be poured out in all of its full power and glory and terror upon the head of my Son. Because Isaiah 53 says that God the Father made the sins of His people to meet on Him as if they were all concentrated on Him. All of God's anger concentrated on that one spot on Calvary 2,000 years ago. Jesus, Jesus took the floods of God's wrath. He bore it all upon Him. He took it all. And I tell you, there was a day when the very last dark drop in that cup of wrath was drunk by the Son of God. I love that hymn written by Ann Cousins. It says, That bitter cup, love drank it up. Every last dark drop. And now blessings are dropped for me. Meaning there was a cup of wrath. And in the garden when Jesus wept and His body poured out blood and sweat. He wasn't weeping. He wasn't full of, of, in a sense, as a human being in trepidation at going to the cross because He was merely going to be beaten by men. He was going to become the thing He hated more than anything that His very nature recoiled at. He was going to be made sin and His Father was going to look at Him as a sinner and punish Him and pour His wrath upon Him. And that cup of wrath, Jesus looked in it. He looked at that cup. Did you ever imagine how filthy, how rotten, how disgusting that cup must have looked? I remember one time I was in England and I was trying to win this man to the Lord who was an atheist. And he brought me into his home and he offered me a cup of, I think it was punch. And he offered me that cup. And I tell you, I looked at that cup and it was filthy. I don't think he'd wash that cup. I don't know if he'd ever wash that cup. It was the most disgusting cup I'd ever seen. Nothing in the world compares to when Jesus looked at that cup. You think of how your stomach would revolt at a cup full of something despicable like if someone were to spit in a cup. You'd be so sick to drink it. But Jesus, it wasn't, it wasn't spit, it was sin. It was the wrath of His Father. You have no idea what that meant for Jesus to take His hands around that cup figuratively and to drink every last dark drop of that cup. And He drank it all. And judgment fell on Jesus. 
He was condemned. And you know what that means for you and I, brother and sister? Come to the second thought of the passage, which is this. He will not be wroth with me. He will not be wroth with you. Hear the word of the Lord. He says, I will not be wroth with thee. Why is the Lord not going to be wroth with us? Because He has been wroth with His Son. Payment God cannot twice demand. First at my bleeding surety's hand. And then again at mine. He cannot pour out wrath upon His Son. And then pour out wrath upon me. This is the promise that the Lord gave to Noah in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 15 with regards to the flood. God spake unto Noah, saying, I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. So the Lord says, I promise, I will not be wroth with thee. I promise, Noah, I will not destroy the earth with a flood anymore. But I will look at a bow, a rainbow, and I will remember my covenant. What is the application to the church? I'm always amazed at the Word of God. In Ezekiel chapter 1, there is a vision that Ezekiel has of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is seated upon a throne. And in glory, His eyes are blazing. But behind that throne, there's a rainbow. There's a rainbow. It is a symbol of God's mercy and His covenant. In the days of Noah, God says, I will look at a rainbow and I will remember my covenant. But in the new covenant, I will look at my son. I will look at my son and I will remember my covenant. God cannot be wroth with me. He cannot be wroth with you. He looks at his son and he sees in his son, judgment has been satisfied. The wrath has been poured out. I will not be wroth with you, church. Wrath never, my wrath is gone. There is not a drop of wrath left. It's gone. There's no more wrath for you. There's no more anger for you. There's no more punishment. There's no more judgment. It fell on Jesus. And as I look at Jesus standing before me, pleading before me with His wounds, I remember my covenant. God is not saying that He's forgotten and He needs to be reminded. That's not the meaning of the word remember in the Old Testament. Remember means God has set His will to keep His covenant because of that bow. And because of the Son, He will keep His covenant. There's no more wrath for you. There's no more wrath for me. Brother and sister, I praise the Lord for this.
There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. I think of the promise in 1 Thessalonians 5.9. We are saved from wrath through Him. Excuse me, Romans 5.9. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And into the caverns of your doubting soul this morning, you need to shout, No more wrath. Tell the devil to come. Let him list all of your sins. Name them, every single one of them. Write them down. Every affection, every thought, every word, every deed, everything you've done with your hands, your feet, your mouth, your eyes, your ears, whatever. Let him make the list and roll it out. Let him roll the list and keep rolling until it covers not only the floor, but it covers the whole city that you live in, covers the whole world a thousand times over. All of your sin. And let the devil look you in the face and say, God is wroth with you, Christian. He's going to damn you because of your sin. But my friend, you can look the devil in the face as Luther did. And you can say, you've forgotten one thing. The Bible says the blood of Jesus cleanseth from all sin. Shout it at the devil. Shout into the very bowels of a gaping hell. No more wrath for me. The Lord has sworn I will not be wroth with you. There is nothing in hell that I need to fear. There is nothing of the devils and demons that I need to fear. Because there is no more wrath for me. There is no more wrath for you. And if there is any of you this morning... And you lack assurance. You lack assurance of your soul before God. You have only two choices this morning. You can believe what God says, or you cannot. God is telling you, I am not wroth with you. I have poured out my judgment on Jesus. Tell me, is Jesus' blood not enough? Tell me, was Jesus' sacrifice not enough? What honor do we give to the Lord when we continually go through our lives wondering, is there wrath for me? When He's taken away your wrath. If you're a believer this morning, He's taken away your wrath. The blood of Jesus was spilt to take away your wrath. And yet we go along through life with our head hanging low every time we sin and fail, wondering, are we saved? Is there wrath for me? What honor does that do to the blood? What honor does that do to the Son? What honor does that do to the covenant promise of God that there's no more wrath for you? Believe it. There's no more wrath. Hallelujah. I'm going to glory. And if you know the Lord, you're going with me. We're going to be taken up with God one day because no wrath for us. Every last dark drop. Hallelujah. Wrath. Never. But then we come to the second promise and that is kindness forever. The Bible says in the 10th verse, For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord, that hath mercy on thee. 
The negative aspect is no wrath, but the positive aspect is everlasting kindness. Now this word kindness is a wonderful Old Testament word. And it speaks of His covenant love. This is the word that's translated loving kindness. And really, it's our word that we know so well in the New Testament to be grace. God's favor. God's smile. Christian, how do you think of your God this morning as He looks at you? Do you see Him smiling at you? Do you see yourself awash in an ocean of grace? Do you see yourself cupped in the hands of your father, a precious child, a beloved sheep? Or have you lost sight of that? The promise of the covenant is kindness or grace forever. Forever. Hallelujah for us who are so wretched, so unworthy. Oh, we live our lives and there's so many doubts and fears. But this assurance takes away, it dispels every fear. His grace is an ocean in which I am awash. Kindness forever. The prophet speaks of the impermanence of earthly things. He says, For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed. Mountains and hills are the picture of something that is immovable. If there's anything in nature that is a picture of that which is certain and sure, unchangeable, immovable, unalterable, it is a mountain. It is a hill. But God says, the mountains and the hills, they'll depart. You know, one day when God rolls the universe up as a scroll, and one day, as Revelation says, earth and heaven will flee away at the face of Jesus, that the mountains will fall. Do you remember in Revelation chapter 6, when the people cry because the wrath of the Lamb is revealed? And they say, hide us from the face of him who sits upon the throne. And the mountains are falling upon them, saying, hide us in the mountains, in the falling mountains upon us from the wrath of the Lamb. The mountains are going to fall. The earth and the foundations are going to be obliterated one day. Do you know that every single thing that you and I know outside of what we know of God is impermanent? Your house is impermanent. Your job is impermanent. Your body is impermanent. Your looks are impermanent. Even your obedience to the Lord, it ebbs and flows. Your faithfulness is not immutable. Nothing that we experience in this earth is impermanent. And so when life is tossing us with tempest, we must have some anchor. We must have something permanent to hold to. And it is God's promise of grace in Christ. That is what is permanent. And God says, Though the mountains shall depart, though the hills be removed, though everything in this world be taken from you, 
Though one day your wife will pass away, your husband, your children, your girlfriend, your fiancé, your job, your house, your money, everything's going to pass from you. There's only one thing that is impermanent, or that is permanent. And that thing is where you stand with God. And if you are in grace, it will never change. And my friend, if you are not in grace, you will die one day as the Lord Jesus said, Thou fool. You remember when that man said, I'm going to build myself houses. I'm going to fill it up with all sorts of stuff. And I'm going to do the best I can in this world. And the Lord Jesus said, You're a fool. You're a fool. It's all going to pass away. You're a fool. You're spending your life on that which is absolutely vain. It's not going to last. And you care nothing for where you stand with God. Only permanent things where we stand before God. But His kindness will never depart from us. And there's two reasons why this kindness will never depart. The first is because God's kindness is based on grace. It is grace. It's based on grace. Look at the end of this text. Saith the Lord that hath mercy on me, on thee. The Hebrew here, you could see it as the Lord, the pitier. You know why you and I are in a state of grace this morning? We're in a state of grace because God pitied us. We're not in a state of grace because we believed. Now we must believe to be saved and come into covenant with God. But the only reason why, in the end of the day, we believe is because grace has taught our heart to. And we are in grace because God pitied us. It's not because of our repentance. It's not because somebody here was smarter than the other person. Why are you saved this morning? You think, well, maybe I'm saved because... I was a little bit more intelligent and I grasped the gospel, but my neighbor happens to be a little bit less intelligent and he couldn't grasp it. Is that really why? Is that what makes the difference between heaven and hell? Between eternity? Is it because I was brought up in a good home? I was born to a Christian family, that's why. I'll tell you the only reason why and it's because God pitied you. Aren't you glad the Lord is the pitier? Aren't you glad He pitied me and pitied you and pities us? He is full of pity. Like as a father pitieth his children, says in Psalm 103, so the Lord pities us. He had pity. He had mercy. And so some of you that might be feeling because of whatever you've done that's sinful. I think of young men that I know that are struggling with sin. And you know how it is. The feeling is terrible. Some young men, they have, at that time in life, they have a great lack of assurance. Because coming through the teenage years and up through the college years, there's a lot, there's a lot of temptation facing, there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of questions being asked. And very often there's a lack of assurance. And there are many young men who their life, lives are absolutely miserable. Speak of young men especially because there's an epidemic in our nation of ungodly things 
on the internet. And there will be that, that thing that, that grips them and they can't stop and they can't get away from it. And they feel miserable and they hate what they do and they hate what they are. But they know they shouldn't do it. They're really saved. They know they shouldn't be doing that. And when they do it, they feel they're not saved. And they lack assurance with God and they feel miserable. They feel like a wretch. And it's just a continual cycle. And I want you to know that if you are struggling with sin and you hate your sin, you need to know that God will not depart from you because of your sin. For He has not chosen you because of your goodness. His kindness is forever. He pities. He loves and the only way, the great motivation to fight sin is to be convinced of the Lord's pity and the Lord's grace and the Lord's mercy. Not to be in bondage to a slavish fear of God. But when our hearts are gripped by the grace of God, then and only then will we live to the full of what Christ has purchased for us. That kindness will never depart because it is a kindness based on grace. Just to illustrate, there is a mother that once approached Napoleon Bonaparte. She wanted her son to be pardoned for something that he had brought up, maybe a crime he had done. And the emperor said, he's done this two times. He needs to be punished. He needs to die. And the mother said, listen, I don't ask for justice. I ask for mercy. And Napoleon said, then I will give you mercy. We don't come to God asking for justice. We ask for mercy. It's not that God has said, you are such a wonderful, godly individual. You have trusted Christ and repented, so I will award you with grace. God's grace is unconditional. It has come to us through God's sovereign love. And if we ever lose sight of that, our souls will shrivel up and become miserable. There are many, there are many churches that mean well, and it is true, they mean well, but they'll preach to their people over and over again, you ought not to be doing wrong, you ought not to be doing wrong. And that is true, we ought not to be doing wrong. And we ought to be doing right. But so many, like someone I just spoke to the other day, don't have real assurance, Bible assurance, feel and experience the joy of salvation. Where's our joy as the people of God? If a lost man or woman came into this congregation this morning, would they see people that rejoice in the salvation of God? Would they see a church congregation that rejoices. There's no more wrath for me. His kindness forever. Hallelujah. Was that what they'd see? Or our heads hanging low because we're so overwhelmed with our sin. We don't really believe the promises of God. We need to be a joyful people. The Bible says in Zechariah that the Lord Himself rejoices over His people with singing. He rejoices over wretched 
vile sinners like us with singing and we can't even rejoice over His salvation? And so many, because they don't have a grasp of grace, an assurance of saving grace, they continually struggle under that bondage of fear before God. And you must be convinced of God's covenant mercy to you. His kindness will never depart. And then last, God's kindness will not depart from us because it is through Christ. It is through Jesus. If you remember what I spoke about earlier, Isaiah 53 comes before 54. The basis of God's covenant, new covenant, is His covenant between the Father and the Son. You remember the Father and the Son that made a covenant and the Son did all the Father set Him out to do. And because He did that, He will purchase His people. He will have His people. In Hebrews chapter 10, we see how it's through Christ. In chapter 10, verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. We are sanctified. We're made holy. We're saved through the offering of Jesus. It says that every priest stands daily ministering, offering sacrifices, but they can never take away sin in verse 11. But then in verse 12, the author of the book of Hebrews says, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. One sacrifice for sins forever forever sat down on the right hand of God. Verse 14, For by one offering He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And then He launches into an exposition of the new covenant. In verse 16, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put My laws into their hearts. He's quoting from Jeremiah 31. And I will put my laws into their hearts. I will put in my minds, I will write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. That's the new covenant. That's the covenant spoken of in Isaiah 54. The new covenant says, I will, I will, I will. It's unconditional. Why? Because Jesus said, I will. Because Jesus, when the Father and the Son made covenant together, and the Father said to the Son, Son, all these men and women, they deserve to go to hell. And yet I wish to save. Oh, how the Lord would save every single one if we would turn. But I wish to save. And through my abounding grace, I am going to pull some from the fire. But Son, you must understand, I will pour out the billows of my wrath upon you. I will, as Romans 8 says, spare not my son, not even my son, my only son, my dear son. I spared Abraham, his son Isaac, when he was about to kill him. You remember in Genesis 22, but I spared him and I gave him a ram, but I will not spare my son. I will not spare him the shame. I will not spare him the nakedness. I will not spare him the wrath. I will not spare him the punishment, but I will pour out all of it upon you. I will not keep back anything. And the son says, Father, lay it all upon me. Open up thy billows. 
Open up the scroll of the sins of my people and wrap them about around me. And let me become united to them so that I will be called their sin. And fall upon me with your wrath. And the son said, I will. And because the son said, I will, the father says now to you and I, I will. I will put my laws into your hearts. I will forgive your sins. I will forgive your iniquities. I will raise you up at the last day, not because of your goodness or repentance or faith, but because of Jesus. Because Jesus said, I will. And God the Father will do good for His Son. His blood will avail. His righteousness will purchase His people. Jesus will receive you. It is all about Him this morning. He is the mediator of the new covenant. It's made through His blood. And if God were to depart from us, He would have to depart from His faithfulness to the second person of the Trinity. And thus God Himself would be absolved into nothing. God's kindness will never ever depart from you and will never ever depart from me. His grace is yours because it's through Jesus. And that means that every single thing you experience has been permitted by the grace of God. Every single thing that happens in your life is by His grace. He loves you everlastingly and it's so certain and sure because it's in His Son he sees you in Him. Hallelujah for Jesus that He has taken away our wrath. He has satisfied the law. And now God says, I will to His people. This morning, if you don't know an assurance of saving grace, I beg you, look to Jesus and see in Him all you need. See in His blood something that the Father absolutely, assuredly cannot refuse and does not desire to because His blood cleanses from all sin. If His blood was shed for your soul with an eye to your salvation, His blood will save. So take His promises to heart and let the joy of God's salvation fill our hearts and thrill us. Wrath never. Kindness is forever. If you don't know the Lord this morning, I tell you this morning, I warn you, the wrath will be yours. Unless you know Jesus, the wrath of God will fall on you. And I beg you to seek the Lord. There is no other way. And may the Lord bless us this morning for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank Thee and bless Thee and praise Thee that we can stand before the God of glory 
and all of our sin and all of our wretchedness. And we can say, there is absolutely no wrath for me and there's everlasting grace for me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank thee, Father, for offering up thy Son. Thank you, Christ, for offering up thyself. Thank thee, Holy Spirit, for upholding the Son of God in his suffering to save us. And praise thee today. Lord, bless everyone here. May thy people know the fullness of the joy of the Lord. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.